speak to God. All right, well, good morning yet again. Hope you had a wonderful week, but if you did not, that is okay. And in fact, we anticipate that when we invite you to pray and to ask God to give you strength and to give you, as Paul mentioned in this passage, patience and endurance so that you could receive everything that God uh, wants you to receive. You know, the Word of God teaches us that when God's people together and sit under the public reading and teaching of the Word, God does have a specific word for this congregation and for each individual. Of course, the application might be different to all, but yet the purpose is still the same. God has a word for his people. Every time I start off Tuesday morning in my study and Tuesday night, I'm panicking. You're like, oh my goodness, I don't know what I'm going to say. I always go back to the promise that by Friday, I am done because God always provides a word for his people. Now, of course, there have been times where, you know, Sunday morning I'm scrambling too, but God is faithful. And I want you to be encouraged by that. So if you have to be going through something right now that is discouraging you, if there's something that is frustrating you, if I'm the source of your frustration, please forgive me. Uh, and let's pray that God would be able to clear your mind and settle your heart and prepare your soul to receive everything that he wants for your nourishment and encouragement. So let's pray together and ask God to bless us. Father, as we have now lifted up to you all of our burdens and all of our struggles and frustrations with what's going on in our lives, what's going on in our families, our work life, or maybe even in our church, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to stay focused on you, help us to have a level head, that we would be open and receptive, and give us teachable hearts, humble us, so that we could receive everything that you desire for us to receive from today's word. And Lord, we ask now that you would bless this message in spite of the ones who bring it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, every morning, Monday to Friday, public school students across the country start their day doing the same routine, which goes as follows. They come into their classrooms, they get settled in, and all of a sudden across the PA system, they hear a little bell, Dee! and a little voice comes up, giving them instructions to stand and to face a fabric hanging off the wall near the ceiling to where they are then proceeded to instruction of reciting a statement, a pledge, right? And it begins with these three words, I pledge allegiance. Allegiance. That's such a funny word if you think about it, right? Allegiance, probably because we hardly ever use it in our everyday language. In fact, probably the last time you ever even used that word was when you recited the Pledge of Allegiance when you were in school. Am I right? But don't let your infrequent usage of that word cause you to conclude that therefore that you have no allegiances. Oh no, every person that walks on this earth has allegiances, whether they realize it or not. Because after all, what is allegiance? What is that word allegiance all about? Well, if you look up that word in any standard dictionary, you'll come across a definition that probably sounds something like this. Loyalty or devotion to some person, group, cause, or the like. 
allegiance defined as loyalty or devotion to some person, group, cause, or the like. What is allegiance? It's being devoted. It's being loyal to some person or to some cause or to some institution, whether it's the person that you're married to, whether it's to the company that you can't live without their products, or whether it's the country that you are proud to be a citizen of. Oh, yes, indeed. Every single person that walks on this earth better indeed has allegiances in their life. And this is especially true when it comes to the Christian. What's that? Yes, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are claiming that you have a preeminent allegiance that you are ultimately loyal to. But what exactly is that, Pastor John? What do you mean by that? Well, that's what today's message is all about. But first, we're continuing our sermon series that we do at the beginning of every new year entitled Vision Series. And the whole point of this series is take a look at our vision statement and take a close look at the various core components of what makes up this vision. And again, if you are unaware of what our new vision is, here it is again. Please look up on the screen, and it goes as follows. MCF exists to bring hope to our broken world through men and women who grow up in the gospel by courageously displaying their allegiance to Jesus through their priorities, family, and work life, and their compassion to the poor. Number two, selflessly invest in personal relationships in order to share the gospel within their various social networks, which we call oikos, not oikios, or however you put it. Confidently engage culture with biblical wisdom in order to promote an inclusive community that flourishes Queens, New York City, the world, and the next generation. Last week, we kicked off this series by taking a look at the first core component, which kind of functions as our preamble, right, which is to bring hope to our broken world through men and women who grow up in the gospel, which means today we're taking a look at the second core component, which is courageously display their allegiance to Jesus through priorities, family, work life, and compassion to the poor. We're going to talk about the Christian's primary allegiance, which as I just read to you, which is our utter loyalty, utter devotion to Jesus Christ. And so to do that, we take a look at this passage in the book of Colossians, the first chapter, where the Apostle Paul is going to expound what does it mean to have primary, ultimate allegiance to Jesus well, as we take a look, there are three things that Paul is going to instruct us when it pertains to our allegiance, and they are as follows. Number one, you must publicly display your allegiance to Jesus. If you want to be a genuine follower of Christ where he is your preeminent allegiance, number one, you have to publicly display your allegiance to him. Number two, you must be willing to suffer for your allegiance to Jesus. You must be willing to suffer for your allegiance to Jesus. And number three, you are capable of allegiance to Jesus through faith in the gospel, okay? You must publicly display your allegiance to Christ. You must be willing to suffer for your allegiance to Christ. And you are capable of having allegiance to Jesus through faith in the gospel, all right? So let's jump right in. Number one, you must publicly display your allegiance to Jesus. Read again with me if we have our passage up, the first half of verse 9, which reads as follows. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Pause right there. Your attention, please. Paul begins our passage by stating that he has heard something. Specifically, he heard something about the Christians living in the city of Colossae, the Colossians, okay? And what exactly did he hear about them? Well, thankfully, we don't have to take an educated guess, because if you go up to verse 3, which we didn't read, but we'll read in just a moment, he clearly tells us what he heard about the Colossians, and it reads as follows. We always give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard about your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Turns out the Apostle Paul heard about the Colossians' faith, a faith that created outward transformation that manifested in their relationships with one another. Now, why is that such a big deal? 
Why is that something that Paul wants to spotlight in our passage? Well, here's what you may not know. The people that Paul is writing to, the Colossians, these are people that he has not personally met. In other words, Paul has never encountered, he's never personally interacted, he's never personally discipled, he's never personally influenced the people that he's writing to known as the Colossians. And because that is true, what does that mean? It means that these Christians living in this city known as Colossae lived out their faith in such a way to where people who did not even personally know them knew about their faith. They heard about it. In other words, these Colossians publicly displayed their faith openly to where people outside of their immediate circle knew about it. And this right there is the first principle that you need to apply, Christian. If you consider yourself a genuine follower of Christ, someone who is loyal to Christ, someone who is devoted to Christ, someone who has allegiance to Jesus, your faith in Jesus has to be a public faith. And what I mean by that is, is that your allegiance to Christ must be so obvious that the first thing people hear about you before you even hear about them who hear about you is that you and Jesus are like this, okay? That is what Paul is saying. Now, I know when some of you guys are hearing that, that unsettles you. That makes you uncomfortable. You don't like the idea that the reputation that precedes you due to your devotion to Jesus is that you are this Jesus guy, right? Because when you think about that, it just conjures up these kind of negative stereotypical images of Jesus freaks that are popular in our culture and yet not flattering to us. I don't know, maybe someone like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, kind of like that out-of-touch Christian who's kind of a loser geek guy. Like, oh yeah, there's that Ned guy, he's all into Jesus. Or maybe... It's the image that is so popular in the media outlets today where, where we're seen as backward-minded fundamentals who just vote pure Republican no matter how incompetent or how outrageous the candidate may be, right? And so because of that, we get unsettled. We don't want to, even though we are devoted to Christ, we don't like the idea that the reputation that would precede us is that we are Christians. But if that's how you feel, you need to consider carefully what Paul says because he says that's not how you should be feeling and that's not how you should think. Because read again of what he says in verse 10. He says this, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see that phrase, every good work, or some translation puts it every good endeavor. What is this work that Paul is referring to? He's referring to the kind of work that is not just limited to your job, but the kind of areas of life that every person, every human being, whether they're a believer or a non-believer, that everyone wants to flourish in. The kind of work that Paul is speaking of there in verse 10 are the categories of life that every human being wants to be a success in. Now you're like, oh, wait a minute, Pastor, I don't understand what you mean by that. What are these categories of life that you are referring to? Well, consider how one author by the name of Doug Sherman, he's the founder and CEO of Career Impact Ministries, listen to what he says as he defines what Paul is saying here. He says this, quote, when we go to the Bible, over and over we see categories that are common to everyone's life. Number one, personal life, including one's relationship to God, one's emotions, and all of the private individual inner aspects of one's life. Number two, family life, including one's spouse, if married, children, parents, and other extended family, and any dependents. Number three, church life, by which I mean one's relationship both near and far to those in the family of God. Number four, work life, that is one's employment or occupation, how one earns a living, or for career homemakers, homemaking is their work. Number five, civic life, by which I mean one's responsibility as citizens towards the government and one's relationship in the broader society and the world, especially the poor and with those outside the faith. 
According to Doug Sherman, the Bible teaches us that there are five areas of life that every single human being, even non-Christians, want to thrive in and to be successful in. Now, if you're here today and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you might be like, ah, I don't know if I agree with you on that whole church life thing. I mean, I'm here today, Pastor, because I was invited, but I don't know if I necessarily want to succeed in church. I'm still trying to figure out this whole church and God thing. Oh, but friend, if you knew how the Bible understands church life and you understood what it's all about, you would indeed agree with what the author is saying. Because what is the Bible essentially talking about when it's talking about church life? It's talking about community life. Life in community, where people come together, where they gather and scatter together to live a life of fellowship and encouragement, right? And isn't something that, 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 that we all want as human beings, don't every Christian, excuse me, not every human being long for fellowship? Whether you're talking about hanging out at the local bar, whether it's hanging out with your alumni association or hanging out with friends in the backyard, you know, having barbecue and, and a couple bottles of beer or whatever it might be. Oh, yes, indeed. Everyone is looking for community life, and the Bible would even go so far as say everyone is looking for church, even if personally they never want to step into one. We are created for community, and we all long for community, which is simply another way of saying we all long for church and church life and to flourish in it. And after all, who can ever argue with the other categories of life? Who of us would not want to flourish in our personal life where we are emotionally stable and psychologically fit? to live our lives as individuals? Or who wouldn't want to thrive in our family lives where our families are doing well, our marriages are healthy, our children are well-to-do, our parents are well taken care of? Who of us in here don't want to thrive in civic responsibility where we fight for the rights of those who are being oppressed in our society, who are affected in our families, or who want to make good promotions for the common good, where we get involved with the political system and we make an impact, or we help the poor, or we do things that we can to help those who are less fortunate? And of course, who of us in here don't want to thrive in our work life, where we do well in our job, not only to pay the bills, but also to get status and recognition for a job well done. Yes, indeed. We all want to succeed in what verse 10 refers to as every good work, every good endeavor. And according to Paul, he goes on to say boldly, that the only way you can succeed in these categories of life, the only way that they can bear fruit or bring to fruition, is if Christ is the Lord of your life. If you have ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord. See, this is what you need to understand, Christian. When I say, or when Paul says, that you must publicly display your allegiance to Christ. He is not saying, for example, that every time you have a family gathering, you preach a sermon or you try to sing a hymn to encourage your brother or sister to start coming to church or things of that nature. It does not mean that when you're working that you blast Christian radio as you're typing so that all your coworkers walking by will know that you are on fire for Jesus. It doesn't mean that when you go to vote at your local school that you wear a massive t-shirt that says Jesus is Lord and you pray for five minutes very loud for everyone to see before you go into the voting booth. No, that is not what I am talking about. That's not what Paul is saying. Rather, he's saying the way you publicly display your allegiance to Jesus is by thriving, doing well, having healthy categories of life where you're doing well individually, in your family life, in your work life, right? And on and on it goes. For example, if you are the kind of person who goes to work and you don't fudge the numbers and you work with integrity, you work with honesty and diligence to where your boss can really depend on you, you are publicly displaying your allegiance to Jesus. When you're at home with your extended family and your siblings is so amazed at how you treat your spouse so kindly, 
even in situations where most people would just throw their temper and yell and, and, and shame them in front of everybody else, but instead you are kind and gracious so that your unbelieving sibling sees it, you are publicly displaying your allegiance to Jesus. When you hang out with old high school buddies and you're no longer hot-tempered and, and cursing people out and you're calm and serene and you're able to speak with kindness and graciousness, you're publicly displaying your allegiance to Jesus. Do you guys see where I'm going with this? Do you understand? When you make Jesus your ultimate allegiance, it will inevitably manifest in you thriving and growing and being healthy in areas of life that every human being wishes to thrive in, that every human being wishes that they were successful as and yet are struggling because Christ is not their allegiance. But when they see you living out your allegiance to Jesus, they see the success and they want what you have. Now, why would that be? Why is this the case? Because contrary to what you may think, Jesus is not only the Christian God, he is the God, right? Or if I could put it this way, Jesus is not only the Lord of Christians, he is the Lord of all, which means the faith that is named after him, Christianity, is not just a personal faith of a few select individuals called Christians. Actually, it's an all-encompassing faith. It is a faith that is universal. I mean, listen to how one theologian by the name of Greg Kukul, how he describes it. He says this, quote, Here is the question. What is Christianity? Some say Christianity is a religious system to follow. Others say it's a way of finding peace with God or maybe a system of ethical principles to live by. Some might say Christianity is not really a religion at all, but rather a relationship with God. These answers all have some truth to them as far as they go. The problem is they do not go far enough. The way Jesus understood religion was not simply as a private spiritual view or as a subjective source of ethics or even as a personalized relationship with God. The correct answer to the question, what is Christianity, is this. Christianity is a picture of reality. It is an account or a description of the way things really are. It is not just a view from the inside of Christian's personal feelings or religious beliefs or spiritual affections or ethical views. It is also a view of the outside, is a view of the world out there or of how the world really is. What's he saying? He's saying that the Christian faith is a faith that actually corresponds to reality, which means if you make the one who's the center of this reality, Jesus, the one who you are primarily allegiance to, you have primary allegiance to, then you will flourish in the reality he is Lord of, which is reality. Do you guys understand that? If you do, then you will understand how we as Christians have the opportunity to be a source of tremendous blessing, not only to each other, but to people outside these walls, where we can be a source to those who don't believe in Christ and yet know us, where we can have an influence in our workplaces, in our homes, in the city that we live in, amongst the neighbors that we live amongst, right? That's the implication. That's the mission. I hope you understand this because here's the sad reality. We're not doing a good job at this. In fact, we're doing quite poorly. We are not a source of blessing. We are not examples to follow. We are not sources of wisdom to pass on to people, right? Why is that? Why are we failing in areas where God has called us to thrive in? Well, this leads me to my next point. You must be willing to suffer for your allegiance to Jesus. Read again verse 11 of our passage where Paul writes as follows. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Pause right there, your attention. Paul is telling us, if you hadn't picked up on it already, is that he is praying for the Colossians. 
okay? And we just read what he's praying for in their behalf. He's praying that God would give them supernatural strength for two things, for endurance and to be patient, right? For endurance and to be patient. Now, let me ask you, think back the last time in your life where you had to endure and you had to be really, really patient. Can you just think back for a moment in your life where you had to go through those two things in a situation, right? Was it a situation that you were enjoying? Was it a situation, a moment that you hope never end? You're like, oh, patient and endurance, yes, please let this never end. No, probably not. Isn't it usually that when we're in a situation where we have to be patient and really enduring that we're miserable? Case in point, personal example, back when uh, my wife and I were dating, we were long distance. I lived in Seattle, she lived in Boston, and so throughout our courtship, we would take turns once a month to fly across the country. And in one situation, I was flying out to her, to Boston. And I was just so excited, I was flying out Monday morning, I couldn't take the red eye because, you know, I was late doing stuff at church. But I remember taking the first flight I could to Boston from Seattle, it was like a really early flight. It was like, I think, uh, 7 a.m., so I got to the airport at like 4. And here's the thing, I was incredibly sleepy, and I was incredibly hungry. So what did I do? I did what any normal, smart, brilliant man would do at that time. I had a big cup of coffee, and I had a massive breakfast burrito, very spicy. And then I boarded the plane. And so uh, I got seated right in the middle of the plane, where I'm furthest away both to the front bathroom and to the back bathroom. And I was sitting on the window seat next to a person, let's just say was kind of a challenge to get across, right? As soon as the plane starts taxiing, without warning, I hear and I feel a rumbling. Like, I was like, oh, without warning, like cramps, sorry, but pain beyond what I thought was fathomable just started like sharp pain, right? And I start sweating. And here's the thing, we're already taxiing, right? And so what am I doing? I'm praying. Jesus Give my colon patience and endurance is what I was literally praying, right? I was like, God, if you just get me through this, I swear, you know. And I knew, like, within, I just had to endure, like, 10 minutes because that's typically the time where it takes for the taxi and to fly and to descend to a certain level and the unfastened seatbelt sign is off. Like, okay, I can just make it, right? Soon as we're taxiing, we stop. Like, what happened? And then, of course, the pilot goes, sorry, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. Uh, we're actually behind five minutes, so we'll just have to stay right here, and uh, we'll have the AC going, and we'll be just fine. I'm like, oh, Lord. And so I'm, like, sweating profusely, and I'm praying, patience, endurance, God, give me patience, endurance. What's the point? The point is this. Patience, endurance in a situation is hard to stay in, right? Situations where you have to endure, where you have to be patient, it's very hard to stay in that situation. And believe it or not, the Colossians were in a situation like that. See, even though the Colossians knew they had an opportunity to be a source of blessing, a source of wisdom to the people of Colossae, to the city of Colossae, here was the situation. The people of Colossae did not want their blessing, at least not the kind that they offered to the city. They're like, no, thank you. You keep your Christianity to yourself. We don't want any of this notion of Jesus is Lord. Thank you very much. Why? Why? For one reason and one reason only. Syncretism. Think of what? <laughs> Syncretism. What's that, Pastor John? Well, let me read to you a definition of the word that we get from the pocket dictionary of biblical studies. Listen to what it says. Syncretism. A blending of varied and often contradictory tenets 
and practices from various religions into one system or simply adapting and assimilating foreign ideas and practices into one religion. See, here's what you need to understand. The city of Colossae was like the city of New York. It was a cosmopolitan city, which means it was a diverse city of many different beliefs about anything and everything under the sun, including religions. The city of Colossae had tons of various beliefs, tons of various religions, various faiths, various lords, okay, that people worshipped. In fact, one of the main reasons why New Testament scholars believe Paul wrote this letter in the first place is because the Colossians in this church were being tempted to syncretize some of their core beliefs of Christianity, such as Jesus is Lord, and to mix it with contradicting non-Christian beliefs like worship angels. <laughs> you should worship angels. Like, what? Yeah. You see, the Colossians were being tempted. They were being pressured by their society to not be so, quote-unquote, exclusivistic, right? Because after all, we're a cosmopolitan city. Who are you to say that your particular religion is the religion? Who are you to say that your particular Lord is the Lord? And because the city did not like this notion of what Christianity was said about Jesus, that he is the Lord of all, the city and its officials passed laws, passed um, uh laws and, 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 and certain obligations to where they pressured Christians in that city financially, legally, culturally, to be like, you better get your act together, okay? You need to be more inclusive, and you need to embrace more faiths, because not only do we not want you to impose your exclusive Lord on everyone else, we want to impose on you this notion of inclusivism, where everyone is accepted, everyone is tolerated, no matter what your belief may be with regard to religion, with regard to sex, with regard to identity, any of that stuff, you need to embrace it all. And as a result, the Colossians were being tempted. Should we incorporate some of these ideas into our practices? Should we have a church service where we venerate you know, an alternative Lord or that we should also worship angels as well as worship Christ as well? Syncretism. Now, some of you are hearing that and you're, like, uh, Pastor John, I don't know. I kind of agree with the city of Colossae on this one, right? Because we live in a time and age that's very similar to this time in the city of Colossae where it's all about inclusiveness. It's all about tolerance, right? And that if you are a decent human being, you wouldn't impose and you wouldn't make these public displays of exclusive claims that your particular view of life and of God and of, of everything is the right way. Right? Case in point, right now in our society, what's a hot button topic? Identity. Right? Identity is a very hot topic right now. Our culture is telling us that we need to be accepting of people who claim an identity where when we first encounter them would not be so obvious to us. Whether it's their gender identity, whether it's their sexual identity, whatever pronoun that they want to be known as. Right? And it, again, you hear, they're like, oh, what's wrong with that, Pastor John? Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that tolerance? Isn't that non-judgmental acceptance? It's a great question. To which I would respond with my own question, and that is, how far are you willing to tolerate to live out consistently this principle of being completely tolerant, of being completely acceptance at all costs? How much are you willing to tolerate with regard to unadulterated tolerance and full-on acceptance? For example, what would you say about this gentleman, Paul Walsh? This is a real person, by the way. Paul Walsh, 54-year-old Canadian man, right, now identifies himself as a six-year-old little girl. No kidding. He now calls himself Stephanie, a six-year-old child. And 
there was a report done on him a couple years ago in Canada. I want to read to you a portion of that newspaper article that gives you a fuller background story to his situation. A Canadian man who was married with seven kids has left his family in order to fulfill his true identity as a six-year-old girl. In an emotional video with the news site The Daily Extra in collaboration with the Transgender Project, Stephanie Walsh, 54 of Toronto, says she realized she was transgender rather than simply a cross-dresser at 46 and split from her wife, Maria, after she told her husband to stop being trans or leave. Now, Stephanie lives with friends who, called, who she calls her adoptive mommy and daddy as a six-year-old girl, dressing in children's clothing and spending time playing and coloring with her adoptive parents' grandchildren. Stephanie further adds, I have a mommy and a daddy, an adopted mommy and daddy, who are totally comfortable with me being a little girl. And their children and their grandchildren are totally supportive. She says she previously lived as an eight-year-old girl until the couple's granddaughter asked her to be the younger sister instead. A year ago, I was eight and she was seven. And then she said to me, I want you to be the little sister, so I'll be nine. I said, well, I don't mind going to six. So I've been six ever since. ask you, honestly, parents and future parents-to-be, would you be okay if Stephanie was in the same kindergarten class as your child if they happened to be in that same class? Would you be okay if Stephanie played unsupervised in the playground, neighborhood playground with your kids? And if you say no, are you willing and ready to be branded as a bigot, as a fundamentalist, as narrow-minded? as being uninvolved, uneducated, and a hater, and a spiteful human being who should be penalized and treated as if you don't have any rights? You see, inclusivism and tolerance, as it's defined in our society, initially sounds like it's only about being accepting of others, which no decent human being would be against, right? Of course not. But when you look at the outcome, consistent outcome and the fruit of our society's understanding of tolerance and acceptance, okay, you see an inconsistency where really what's down at it, at the bottom of it, is a refusal to submit to a higher authority. If you really want to understand what is driving our culture's understanding of intolerance, or excuse me, of tolerance and full-on acceptance is a refusal to recognize that there is a Lord that we are called to submit to. No, the only Lord that I am submit to is my own lordship, right? I am my own lord. I define my own identity. I define who I am, or at least my feelings do, right? I am my own lord. I have no other lord above me, so who are you to tell me that I am something that my feelings or my sense of, uh, of emotions are, is telling me contrary to, right? Because this is the cultural climate of our day, it takes a lot of courage to live your life with the conviction that there is an absolute authority that humanity has to submit to, that there is a someone who is Lord of all. Because don't misunderstand, when you attempt to publicly display your allegiance to Christ, when you try to live your life not to where you are your own authority, but you are to submit to an authority that's not just your personal authority, but the authority of all, the response that you're going to get from our society is mistreatment, due to being misunderstood, that will result in being misaligned. Again, when you attempt to live out your faith under the lordship of Christ, where you try to publicly display that, right, you are going to be mistreated because of the misunderstanding that results in you being misaligned. And Christian, this shouldn't surprise us. 
sometimes I do get discouraged when I hear Christians say, I don't understand, Pastor John, why my rights are being taken away from me. I don't understand why people are persecuting me for my faith. I don't understand why people don't like me. And, and I, I work so hard to get people to not like dislike me and to not hate me. But Christian, do you not read scripture? <laughs> do you not remember what Jesus said, what he promised to us would happen when we choose to make him our Lord? John 15, listen to what he says. If the world hates you, Remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They would do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. Why does the world hate you? Is it because you're a fundamentalist? Is it because you're narrow-minded? Is it because you're a bigot? No. Because it hates the one who you call Lord, the one who sent Jesus, right? Our master, and we are the slaves, and we are not greater than our master, right? What's the point? The point is this. If you really believe Jesus is Lord, and you hold on to the conviction that you are to have him as your ultimate allegiance, be ready to suffer. Be willing to suffer, because suffering will come, where it will require endurance, where it will require patience, where it requires suffering, right? Now, some of you hearing is like, ah, Pastor, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, but this is really hard. I don't know how I can put myself in a situation where I would put myself or my family in a situation where we would suffer. I feel, how can I do this? How can, I mean, uh, Jesus is my Lord. I do want to live my life as if he's my Lord, but how can I do that when it's so hard? When I could lose so much and when so many people will misunderstand me and hate me through their misunderstanding of me. Great question. This leads me to my final point. You are capable of allegiance to Jesus and faith in the gospel. Read again with me verse 13 of our passage where Paul writes, and it is hot. Sorry, folks. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Here Paul tells us how we're capable of having our allegiance to Christ, even in the midst of such suffering. And surprisingly, it's not anything that we have to do. No, God has to do something for us. And what does he have to do? Verse 13, God has to transfer us from the domain of darkness into the realm of the kingdom of his son, where he is the king, he is the Lord. Here's the question. How does God do this transference? How does he transfer out from darkness to the kingdom of his son? It's through the gospel, right? The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says that even though all of humanity sinned against God and rejected God as Lord so they can live out their selfish, self-absorbed, narcissistic life, nevertheless, God was unwavering in his love for you. A love that manifests in his desire of wanting you to flourish, of wanting you to be successful, of wanting to bless you. God loved you with that kind of flourishing love to the point where he remained loyal to that commitment even when you were disloyal to him, okay? That's what the gospel teaches us. In other words, his love for us is unwavering. It's unending. It's committed. And this loyal love for humanity was supremely expressed when what? He becomes a man, Jesus Christ, and he takes on the full penalty, the full consequences of all your disloyalty to him and your refusal of making him your allegiance by dying on the cross as your savior substitute, right? That's what the gospel teaches. And here's the thing. 
this suffering wasn't a private suffering, right? Jesus didn't get tortured and murdered in some tiny crevice cell hidden away from public view in the city of Jerusalem. When Jesus was executed, he was on public display. Everyone saw him where he had to endure so much, where he had to deal with such patience, right? He had to stay in a situation that required him to endure and to be patient. And he did all that. Why? To convey to you that he is committed, that he is devoted, and that he is loyal to you even when you're disloyal to him. What is he doing? What is Jesus showing? He's showing allegiance, right? Go back to that definition of allegiance for just a moment. See what it says up there? Loyalty or devotion to some person, group, cause, or the like. If you want to have a good example of what allegiance looks like, look to Jesus. Look to his allegiance to you. And think about this for just a moment. This is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of Lords. He does not have to have any loyalty towards us. We are his subjects. King does not have any loyalty that's obligated by in and of itself that's the same measure of a servant to a king, right? And here's what's even crazier. We sinned against our king. We sinned against our Lord, which means he has even more reason to show no loyalty or allegiance. That's a double whammy. And yet, who is he? He's the kind of king. He's the kind of Lord that shows allegiance to us to the point that he's willing to suffer where it would require great patience, great endurance, so that you would know the extent See, when you understand what Jesus was willing to endure, the patience that he was willing to exhibit on the cross so that you would know the extent of his allegiance to you, then and only then will you find a desire, the motivation, and the power to maintain your allegiance to Jesus no matter how much you would suffer, no matter how impatient you feel, no matter how much you want to give up because you know Christ did so much more to maintain his allegiance Here's the question. Do you get that? Do you understand that? I hope you do. We're about to finish today's message, but before we do, would you allow me to suggest some practical steps, next steps, that you can think through as possible sources of application uh, for today's message. And here they are. Number one, ask yourself this question. Have I made Jesus Lord in those five areas of life that I talk about. In other words, think about your personal life, your private life, your family life, your work life, and all this stuff, right? Your civic life. In each of these five areas, is Christ really the Lord? For example, who are you when no one is looking, right? What are you browsing when no one is aware that you're on the computer? What are you doing when you're at work and there's no supervision? Is Jesus Lord in each of those areas of life? You know, one practical way that you can know how you're doing in this area is what do the non-christians who know you really well what do they say about you in these areas of life are they encouraging are they blessed like wow man i love how you do marriage how you're growing i love how you work you're so busy or could it be like aren't you supposed to be a christian <laughs> why are you like why are you taking the pencil why are you taking the stapler home <laughs> no matter how i'm feeling you know i'm just coming up with stuff off my i'm very bad on my feet i guess what do the non-Christians in your social, what are they saying about these five areas of life as they witness you and as, well as they know about your claims of Christ as Lord of your life, right? Number two, can you think of one thing you can do to display your allegiance to Jesus? In other words, are there non-Christians in your oikos, right, who you've tried to minimize and tone down that you are into Jesus, right? <laughs> Is there a coworker? right, who you're close with and you really think they're cool and, and you really want them to keep respecting you? 
right? And then they talk about Christianity in a pejorative way, like, yeah, those Christians, without letting him know, right, that you're actually born again. Can you think of one thing, one bold, courageous thing to where you can publicly display as a Christian that you are indeed a Christ follower? Number three, can you identify and pray and support for someone in this church, right, who is struggling to make Jesus Lord in one particular area that you're very strong in, right? Is there someone in our community who's struggling in their marriage, but you're doing well in your marriage, right, where you want to just befriend them and pray for them and say, hey, let's hang out, let's talk. How are you doing? Or if there's someone in our community who's struggling with pornography, right, and you don't have that struggle, and you know this person does, I don't know how you found out, but you just know, right? And you say, you know what, I'm going to pray for this person, and when the time has come, I'm going to approach them, I'm going to pray for them, right? Can you think of one person in this body who you can be, right, a brother and sister in Christ? And finally, number four, as we continue this series, would you reflect and meditate our vision statement, especially the one that we're studying next week, selflessly investing in personal relationships with those who share the gospel within their various circumstances. Take a snapshot of these next steps, hold on to it, pray over it, and think about it. You know, when we have our Oikos group starting, uh, these are the kinds of questions that we want our Oikos leaders to think about as we reflect on on the sermon. But until then, think about this as your own uh, personal prayers that you need to think through as you try to live out your primary calling in this world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would help us to really move forward in faith. Father, you are the Lord of all, but Lord, you are not being recognized as such, whether it be in our homes, whether it be in the workplaces, and certainly not in the city that we call our home, at least temporarily. And Lord, we need power from above. We need to endure. We need to have patience. And we need to be public in our allegiance to you. Father, we pray that as we go out into the world, as we seek to be a blessing, Help us to really grow under the lordship of Jesus to where in our private lives, our work life, our church community life, Lord, that in our civic life, all of these things, our work life would all exhibit the beautiful glories of what happens when a human being made in the image of Christ submits to the Christ as Lord of all. God, would you give us the courage and the strength to do that and help us to always meditate deeply on the gospel truth, the wonderful love that showed your allegiance to us when you had no requirement of it. Humble us and lead us to move in that direction. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.